0: Part One, Chapter Four, Section One of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chance, Part One, Chapter Four, The Governess. Section One. And the best of it was that the danger was all over already. There was no danger any more. The supposed nephew's appearance had a purpose. He had come full, full to trembling with the bigness of his news. There must have been rumours already as to the shaky position of the de Barrel's concerns, but only amongst those in the very inmost know. No rumour or echo of rumour had reached the profane in the West End, let alone in the guileless marine suburb of Hove. The Fines had no suspicion. The governess, playing with cold, distinguished exclusiveness, the part of mother to the fabulously wealthy Miss de Barrel, had no suspicion. The masters of music, of drawing, of dancing to Miss de Barrel had no idea. The minds of her medical man, of her dentist, of the servants in the house, of the tradesmen proud of having the name of de Barrel on their books were in a state of absolute serenity. Thus, that fellow, who had unexpectedly received a most alarming straight tip from somebody in the city, arrived in Brighton at about lunchtime with something very much in the nature of a deadly bomb in his possession. But he knew better than to throw it on the public pavement. He ate his lunch impenetrably, sitting opposite Flora de Barrel, and then, on some excuse, closeted himself with the woman whom Littlefine's charity described, with a slight hesitation of speech, however, as his aunt. What they said to each other in private we can imagine. She came out of her own sitting-room with red spots on her cheekbones, which, having provoked a question from her beloved charge, were accounted for by a curt, I have a headache coming on. But we may be certain that the talk being over, she must have said to that young blackguard, you'd better take her out for a ride as usual. We have proof positive of this in Fine and Mrs. Fine observing them mount at the door and pass under the windows of their sitting-room, talking together, and the poor girl all smiles, because she enjoyed, in all innocence, the company of Charlie. She made no secret of it, whatever, to Mrs. Fine. In fact, she had confided to her long before that she liked him very much a confidence which had filled Mrs. Fine with desolation and that sense of powerless anguish which is experienced in certain kinds of nightmare. For how could she warn the girl? She did venture to tell her once that she didn't like Mr. Charlie. Mr. Barrel heard her with astonishment. How is it possible not to like Charlie? Afterwards, with naive loyalty, she told Mrs. Fine that, immensely as she was fond of her, she could not hear a word against Charlie, the wonderful Charlie. The daughter of de Barrel probably enjoyed her jolly ride with the jolly Charlie, infinitely more jolly than going out with the stupid old riding-master, very much indeed, because the fine saw them coming back at a later hour than usual. In fact, it was getting nearly dark. On dismounting, helped off by the delightful Charlie, she patted the neck of her horse and went up the steps. Her last ride... She was then within a few days of her sixteenth birthday, a slight figure in a riding habit, rather shorter than the average height for her age, in a black bowler hat from under which her fine, rippling, dark hair, cut square at the ends, was hanging well down her back. The delightful Charlie mounted again to take the two horses round to the mews. Mrs. Fine, remaining at the window, saw the house-door close on Mr. Barrel, returning from her last ride. And meanwhile, what did the governess out of a nobleman's family, so judiciously selected, a lady and connected with well-known county people, as she said, to direct the studies, guard the health, form the mind, polish the manners and generally play the perfect mother to that luckless child. What had she been doing? Well, having got rid of her charge by the most natural device possible, which proved her practical sense, she started packing her belongings, an act which showed her clear view of the situation. She had worked methodically, rapidly and well, emptying the drawers, clearing the tables in her special apartment of that big house, with something silently passionate in her thoroughness, taking everything belonging to her, and some things of less unquestionable ownership – a jewelled penholder, an ivory and gold paper knife – the house was full of common, costly objects – some chased silver boxes presented by de Barrel and other trifles. But the photograph of Flora de Barrel, with the loving inscription which stood on her writing-desk of the most modern and expensive style in a silver-gilt frame, she neglected to take. Having accidentally, in the course of the operations, knocked it off on the floor, she let it lie there after a downward glance. Thus it, or the frame at least, became, I suppose, part of the assets in the de Barrel bankruptcy. At dinner that evening the child found her company dull and brusque, It was uncommonly slow. She could get nothing from her governess but monosyllables, and the jolly Charlie actually snubbed the various cheery openings of his little chum, as he used to call her at times, but not at that time. No doubt the couple were nervous and preoccupied. For all this we have evidence, and for the fact that Flora, being offended with the delightful nephew of her profoundly respected governess, sulked through the rest of the evening and was glad to retire early. Mrs. Mrs. I've really forgotten her name, the governess, invited her nephew to her sitting room, mentioning aloud that it was to talk over some family matters. This was meant for Flora to hear, and she heard it, without the slightest interest. In fact, there was nothing sufficiently unusual in such an invitation to arouse in her mind even a passing wonder. She went, bored, to bed, and being tired with her long ride, slept soundly all night, Her last sleep, I won't say of innocence, that word would not render my exact meaning, because it has a special meaning of its own. But I will say of that ignorance, or better still, of that unconsciousness of the world's ways, the unconsciousness of danger, of pain, of humiliation, of bitterness, of falsehood. An unconsciousness, which in the case of other beings like herself, is removed by a gradual process of experience and information, often only partial at that, with saving reserves, softening doubts, veiling theories. Her unconsciousness of the evil which lives in the secret thoughts and therefore in the open acts of mankind, whenever it happens that evil thoughts meet evil courage, Her unconsciousness was to be broken into with profane violence, with desecrating circumstances, like a temple violated by a mad, vengeful impiety. Yes, that very young girl, almost no more than a child, this was what was going to happen to her. And if you ask me how, wherefore, for what reason, I will answer you, why, by chance... By the merest chance, as things do happen, lucky and unlucky, terrible or tender, important or unimportant, and even things which are neither, things so completely neutral in character that you would wonder why they do happen at all if you didn't know that they too carry in their insignificance the seeds of further incalculable chances. Of course, all the chances were that de Barrel should have fallen upon a perfectly harmless, naive, usual, inefficient specimen of respectable governess for his daughter, or on a commonplace silly adventuress who would have tried, say, to marry him or work some other sort of common mischief in a small way. Or again, he might have chanced on a model of all the virtues, or the repository of all knowledge, or anything equally harmless, conventional and middle-class. All calculations were in his favour, but chance, being incalculable, he fell upon an individuality whom it is much easier to define by opprobrious names than to classify in a calm and scientific spirit, but an individuality, certainly, and a temperament as well. Rare? No. There is a certain amount of what I would politely call unscrupulousness in all of us, Think, for instance, of the excellent Mrs Fine, who herself, and in the bosom of her family, resembled a governess of a conventional type. Only her mental excesses were theoretical, hedged in by so much humane feeling and conventional reserves that they amounted to no more than mere libertinage of thought, whereas the other woman, the governess of Flora de Barrel, was, if you may have noticed, severely practical, terribly practical. No. Hers was not a rare temperament, except in its fierce resentment of repression, a feeling which, like genius or lunacy, is apt to drive people into sudden irrelevancy. Hers was feminine irrelevancy. A male genius, a male ruffian, or even a male lunatic would not have behaved exactly as she did behave. There is a softness in masculine nature, even the most brutal, which acts as a check. While the girls slept, those two... The woman of forty, an age in itself terrible, and that hopeless young un of twenty-three, also well connected, I believe, had some sort of subdued row in the cleared rooms. Wardrobes open, drawers half pulled out and empty, trunks locked and strapped, furniture in idle disarray, and not so much as a single scrap of paper left behind on the tables. The maid, whom the governess and the pupil shared between them, after finishing with Flora, came to the door as usual, but was not admitted. She heard the two voices in dispute before she knocked, and then, being sent away, retreated at once, the only person in the house convinced at that time that there was something up. Dark and, so to speak, inscrutable spaces being met with in life, there must be such places in any statement dealing with life. In what I am telling you of now, an episode of one of my humdrum holidays in the green country, recalled quite naturally after all the years by our meeting a man who had been a blue-water sailor. This evening confabulation is a dark, inscrutable spot, and we may conjecture what we like. I have no difficulty in imagining that the woman of 40 and the chief of the Enterprise must have raged at large, and perhaps the other did not rage enough, Youth feels deeply, it is true, but it has not the same vivid sense of lost opportunities. It believes in the absolute reality of time. And then, in that abominable scamp with his youth already soiled, withered like a plucked flower, ready to be flung on some rotting heap of rubbish, no very genuine feeling about anything could exist, not even about the hazards of his own unclean existence. A sneering half-laugh, with some such remark as, "'We're properly sold, and no mistake,' would have been enough to make trouble in that way. And then another sneer, "'Waste time enough over it, too,' followed perhaps by the bitter retort from the other party. "'You seem to like it well enough, though, playing the fool with that shit of a girl.' "'Something of that sort. Don't you see it? Eh?' Yeah. Marlowe looked at me with his dark, penetrating glance. I was struck by the absolute verisimilitude of this suggestion, but we were always tilting at each other. I saw an opening and pushed my uncandid thrust. "'You have a ghastly imagination,' I said, with a cheerfully sceptical smile. "'Well, and if I have,' he returned unabashed. "'But let me remind you that this situation came to me unasked. "'I am like a puzzle-headed chief mate we once had in the dear old Semacand when I was a youngster.' "'The fellow went gravely about trying to account to himself, "'his favourite expression, "'for a lot of things no one would care to bother one's head about. "'He was an old idiot, "'but he was also an accomplished practical seaman. "'I was quite a boy, and he impressed me. "'I must have caught the disposition from him.' "'Well, go on with your accounting, then,' I said, "'assuming an air of resignation. "'That's just it.' "'Marlow fell into his stride at once. "'That's just it.' Mere disappointed cupidity cannot account for the proceeding of the next morning, proceedings which I shall not describe to you, but which I shall tell you of presently, not as a matter of conjecture, but of actual fact. Meantime, returning to that evening altercation in deadened tones within the private apartment of Mr Barrel's governess, what if I were to tell you that disappointment had most likely made them touchy with each other, but that perhaps the secret of his careless railing behaviour was in the thought, springing up within him with an emphatic oath of relief, now there's nothing to prevent me from breaking away from that old woman and that the secret of her in Venomed Rage, not against this miserable and attractive wretch, but against fate, accident and the whole course of human life, concentrating its venom on de Barrel, and including the innocent girl herself, was in the thought, in the fear, crying within her, Now I have nothing to hold him with. I couldn't refuse Marlowe the tribute of a prolonged whistle. So you suppose that... He waved his hand impatiently. I don't suppose. It was so. And anyhow, why shouldn't you accept the supposition? Do you look upon governesses as creatures above suspicion or necessarily of moral perfection? I suppose their hearts would not stand looking into much better than other people's. Why shouldn't a governess have passions? All the passions, even that of libertinage and even ungovernable passions, yet suppressed by the very same means which keep the rest of us in order, early training, necessity, circumstances, fear of consequences. Till there comes an age, a time when the restraint of years becomes intolerable and infatuation irresistible. But if infatuation, quite possible, I admit, I argued, but how do you account for the nature of the conspiracy? You expect a cogency of conduct not usual in women, said Marlowe. The subterfuges of a menaced passion are not to be fathomed. You think it is going on the way it looks, whereas it is capable, for its own ends, of walking backwards into a precipice. When one once acknowledges that she was not a common woman, then all this is easily understood. She was abominable, but she was not common. She had suffered in her life not from its constant inferiority, but from constant self-repression. A common woman, finding herself placed in a commanding position, might have formed the design to become the second Mrs. de Barrel, which would have been impracticable. De Barrel would not have known what to do with a wife. But even if by some impossible chance he had made advances, this governess would have repulsed him with scorn. She had treated him always as an inferior being, with an assured distant politeness. In her composed, schooled manner, she despised and disliked both father and daughter exceedingly. I have a notion that she had always disliked intensely all her charges, including the two ducal, if they were ducal, little girls with whom she had dazzled the barrel. What an odious, ungratified existence it must have been for a woman, as avid of all the sensuous emotions which life can give as most of her betters. She had seen her youth vanish, her freshness disappear, her hopes die, and now she felt her flaming middle age slipping away from her. No wonder that with her admirably dressed, abundant hair, thickly sprinkled with white threads, and adding to her elegant aspect the piquant distinction of a powdered coiffure, no wonder, I say, that she clung desperately to her last infatuation for that graceless young scamp, even to the extent of hatching for him that amazing plot. He was not so far gone in degradations as to make him utterly hopeless for such an attempt. She hoped to keep him straight with that enormous bribe, She was clearly a woman uncommon enough to live without illusions, which, of course, does not mean that she was reasonable. She had said to herself, perhaps with a fury of self-contempt, In a few years I shall be too old for anybody. Meantime I shall have him, and I shall hold him by throwing to him the money of that ordinary silly little girl of no account. Well, it was a desperate expedient, but she thought it worth while. And besides, there is hardly a woman in the world, no matter how hard, deprived or frantic, in whom something of the maternal instinct does not survive, unconsumed like a salamander, in the fires of the most abandoned passion. Yes, there might have been that sentiment for him too. There was, no doubt. So I say again, no wonder... No wonder that she raged at everything, and perhaps even at him, with contradictory reproaches, for regretting the girl, a little fool who would never in her life be worth anybody's attention, and for taking the disaster itself with a cynical levity in which she perceived a flavour of revolt. And so the altercation of the night went on over the irremediable. He, arguing, what's the hurry? Why clear out like this? Perhaps a little sorry for the girl, and as usual, without a penny in his pocket, appreciating the comfortable quarters, wishing to linger on as long as possible in the shameless enjoyment of this already doomed luxury. There was really no hurry for a few days, always time enough to vanish. And with that, a touch of masculine softness, a sort of regard for appearances, surviving his degradation. You might behave decently at the last, Eliza. But there was no softness in the sallow face under the gala effect of powdered hair, its formal calmness gone, the dark ringed eyes glaring at him with a sort of hunger. No, no, if it is as you say, then not a day, not an hour, not a moment. She stuck to it, very determined that there should be no more of that boy and girl philandering, since the object of it was gone angry with herself for having suffered from it so much in the past, furious at its having been all in vain. But she was reasonable enough not to quarrel with him finally. What was the good? She found means to placate him, the only means. As long as there was some money to be got, she had hold of him. Now go away. We shall do no good by any more of this sort of talk. I want to be alone for a bit. He went away, sulkily acquiescent. There was a room always kept ready for him on the same floor, at the further end of a short, thickly carpeted passage. How she passed that night, this woman with no illusions to help her, through the hours which must have been sleepless, I shouldn't like to say. It ended at last, and this strange victim of the de Barrel failure, whose name would never be known to the official receiver, came down to breakfast impenetrable in her everyday perfection. From the very first, somehow, she had accepted the fatal news for true. All her life she had never believed in her luck, with that pessimism of the passionate who at bottom them feel themselves to be the outcasts of a morally restrained universe. But this did not make it any easier, on opening the morning paper feverishly, to see the thing confirmed. Ah, oh, yes, it was there. The orb had suspended payment, the first growl of the storm faint as yet, but to the initiated the forerunner of a deluge. As an item of news, it was not indecently displayed. It was not displayed at all, in a sense. The serious paper, the only one of the great dailies which had always maintained an attitude of reserve towards the de Barrel group of banks, had its manner. Yes, a modest item of news. But there was also, on another page, a special financial article in a hostile tone, beginning with the words, "'We have always feared,' and a guarded half-column leader, opening with the phrase, "'It is a deplorable sign of the times,' what was, in effect, an austere general rebuke to the absurd infatuations of the investing public. She glanced through these articles, a line here and a line there. No more was necessary to catch beyond doubt the murmur of the oncoming flood, Several slighting references by name to De Bell revived her animosity against the man suddenly, as by the effect of unforeseen moral support. The miserable wretch. End of part one, chapter four, section one.